open your Bibles to Hebrews this morning, Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1. We are looking to try to move through this chapter in terms of its depth, but in terms of its cohesion. So we'll see how many handfuls of chapter 1 we can take on this morning, because really verses 4 through 14 hang together, making the simple point that Jesus is better than the angels. So kids, if your parents ask you, any kids that are still here or whatever, what was the sermon about? Well, dad, mom, it was Jesus is better than the angels. What? You know, talk to me, right? I mean, kids, you, you got to have that soundbite for that parent to child moment. But even, even spouse to spouse, you, you know, it was about Jesus is better than the angels. And there's seven Old Testament references that serve as hammer strikes to, to bury that point deeply into our hearts. Jesus is, the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is better than the angels because the Bible tells me so. And the Old Testament is the Bible, is, is giving us everything we need for life and godliness. And it ties together with the New Testament. And the centerpiece of all of scripture tying together is Christ. And Jesus is better than the angels. So what does that matter that he's better than angels? We probably haven't uh, seen an angel. Maybe we've been unaware of an angel that we've entertained, right? But we don't see angels. We don't see that dimension. But we know that the angelic dimension is real. There's a lot of people that believe in aliens and coming from another dimension. Well, not, right? But there is, there are angels that come from another dimension and engage us here on earth, uh, perhaps unawares, but there's a spiritual dimension and there's a testimony of scripture where angels have taken on human characteristics and engaged people. We don't learn about angels a bit, but I want to address this issue right up front. How easy would it really be to swap out Jesus for an angel, especially if you knew Jesus personally and, and, and knew him while he was here on earth, let alone know him in your heart as we all do. How tempting would it be to swap our relationship with Christ for an angel? Like, I, you know, I want an angel instead of Jesus. Well, is that an easy thing to do? Well, it was for the Apostle John, apparently. If you look at the end of Revelation, Revelation 19, I'm not going to wade through all of this, but just the top of the chapter, you have culminating phrases about what's happening with the world. And this is the vision that John saw on the island of Patmos at the end of his life. He knew Jesus. He had, he had laid across Jesus' chest at Passover supper. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is the end of his career as an apostle. He's the final apostle. He sees the vision of God. He sees the judgments that are coming on the world. He's exposed to these heavenly visions. And, and the vision at this point in Revelation 19 is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to God. Verse 2, judgments are, are true and just. Verse 3, there's another cry for the hallelujah to God. Smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Um, that's speaking of the church, the 24 elders and the four living creatures falling down and worshiping God, saying, hallelujah, verse five, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great, 
the voice of the great multitude, like the sound of many waters crying out hallelujah, rejoicing uh, and giving glory to God for the marriage supper of the Lamb. The bride has made herself ready. This is all gospel imagery, gospel language, Christ language. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen. She's coming back. And verse 9, he is coming back. Verse 9, and the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This is the angel speaking. And then, verse 10, I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said, you must not, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant. And you and your brothers who hold to the testimony, testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What is going on there? I'll tell you what's going on. John is so caught up with the message and the messenger that he forgets about who the message is about and whom the messenger is extolling. He goes for a different mediator at that point. He gets wrapped up in the word of God so much that he misses God. Can happen. Revelation 22. This is the last chapter of Revelation. The angel showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So this is all throne-centric. The Lamb, you have heavenly pictures of the streets of, of heaven, the river, the tree of life. Verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed. Everything is perfect. The Lamb will be in it. The throne of God, again, verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Verse 5, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, this is the angel speaking, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And this is Christ speaking, and, I, and behold, I am coming soon, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. This is a confession. It happened again. He's like, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Worship God. Don't worship me. Don't worship a created being. Again, the mix-up is you're transferring Christ. You're swapping out Christ for the messenger. You're swapping out Christ for a focus on truth in a wrong way. Truth is to propel us upward, not inward. Not, not inward in a, a self-focused sense. John is saying, oh man, I'm so overwhelmed with truth. I'm just gonna fall down in front of this angel right now and do whatever I think I need to do instinctively instead of, worshiping Christ. So in light of the glory of God, in light of Christ, John was moved to worship angels. Why? It's easy to replace Christ with something else, a different mediator, if you want to say it that way, a different way to try to find satisfaction in your life than the once for all sacrifice that was given for our sins. Jesus paid it all, right? All to him we owe. We bow and worship Christ with that focus on him, not on other things. We replace Christ with preachers, 
Sometimes the preacher becomes the mediator that you're looking to instead of Christ. It could be preaching that makes you feel a certain way. You say, I, I want that. That, that. That's mediating something to me. You can replace Christ with programs. Man, I love this program. I love when I do that. It makes me feel significant. It gives me an identity. You can replace Christ with people. Oh man, just by being with certain people in community or the big group or the smaller group, that's Christ to me. Or the prophecies. You can replace Christ with Bible knowledge. And Bible knowledge consumed in the wrong way puffs up instead of exalting God. So these are temptations to find false mediators. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So the point of Hebrews, again, is that Christ is our mediator. But I want you to see in chapter 1 that angels were a compelling temptation. Angels are very compelling beings. And there's a reason that this author of Hebrews had to Put things in perspective. Angels are real. Angels are powerful. Angels are not the Michael Landon variety of angels in TV or the, you know, the little cupids on the cards, you know, with strumming harps on the the clouds. I mean, if heaven's like that, I don't really want to go there. I, I don't. I don't I don't like that vision of heaven. I the vision of heaven that's biblical is is real and powerful. It's physical. It is a place you eat real food. You you have activities. You know people by name. You might not be married in heaven, but you still know each other and you're the family of God. That's the picture of heaven. And angels are real and they are physical. And the Bible says a lot about them. You know, their appearance was like lightning, Matthew 28, and guards fell as dead men. They have high, high intelligence and emotions. They rejoice when one sinner is saved, right? Hebrews 13 says, that, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Some have entertained angels unawares. They were created all at once, I think. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 speaks of that. There's thousands and thousands. Revelation 4 and 5 says myriads and myriads, which is ten thousands upon ten thousands of angels. A third of those angels, by the way, were struck down, right, and, and condemned and doomed to hell. And now are demons, Satan being the first fallen angel, Job 38 speaks in verse 7 where God laid the foundations of the world and the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. It's possible that on day three, God made angels. It's not directly mentioned in the creation account as to exactly precisely in the sixth literal day creation when the angels were formed. We don't know that, but we know a whole host were formed and suddenly they're shouting in a chorus line at God's creation to God's glory. Revelation 4, I said a third of them fell. Um, They have a relationship. The angels do. They have a relationship with God. Even the demons are those seen in Job 1 as speaking or in the council with God when Satan was saying, can I go after your servant Job? They're organized in divided ranks, um, angels, principalities, They're stronger than we are. Do you know that? Angels are stronger beings than we are. We are said that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. He who is in the world is a strong angel who is the devil. 
a demon. That's a picture of how strong a, an angel is. Michael the archangel was arguing with Satan over the body of Moses. There are strange things that are happening that we're just unaware of. And yet in the gospel, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ, not angels or principalities. In 2 Kings chapter 6, there's a picture of Elisha. You remember that where he had his servant, his young lad with him. He woke up and said, oh, the king of Syria's armies are all around and we are outnumbered. In 2 Kings chapter 6, 17, Elisha prayed, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened his eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. They move with great speed. Some have wings. They're called the sons of God throughout um, the Old Testament. Um, They have names. Michael and Gabriel are a couple that we know of. Also, the name Lucifer was given to uh, the angel that was condemned as Satan. Angels uh, carry out and observe God's mission. They're dispatched to minister. Um, They minister to Christ at at his temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was in great travail. They promote the holiness of God and the glory of God. We don't really have a lot of time to look. Sometime you should read Ezekiel chapter 1 if you want a picture of angels and how dominant the four living creatures are who had four faces, some animal faces and human faces, and they, they have wings on each side, and there, there are different characteristics as they, they change their face and, and the image of their face as they're looking at the throne of God to reflect an attribute of strength strength back to God or an attribute of wisdom back to God, an attribute of glory back to God. They're the living creatures moving in the midst of fire and coals and torches and, uh, you know, brightness and glory. They move with great speed and awesomeness. They were at the birth of Christ and they extol the, um, the throne room of God. Well, the Jews twisted all this up and began to worship these beings wrongly. And the Jewish Christians were tempted to do this, I think, as a little bit of a a masking over their true commitment to Christ. They're saying, well, you know, it's just this sort of tradition where Christ is like an angel. And so, you know, we're not we're not putting ourselves out there all the way. We're more like the Jews who who kind of still were worshiping angels wrongly. The Talmudic writings um, of the Jews said that Angels were, you know, part of the council of creation. Let us make a man in our own image, the us being angels. They had categories of presence, God's presence, angels. They had names, Raphael, Uriel, Faniel. These, they, they tacked on the name El to, to spiritualize them. They made fictitious ideas that they attacked Moses up on the way to Mount Sinai to receive the law. They said that 200 angels controlled the stars, the calendar events, days, months, um, the seas, the weathers, the weather patterns. Uh, They say, and people believe this today too, some believe that demons are in hell and they're the torturers. Who's ever heard of that or thought that wrongly, right? Well, that's not true. The demons are those who are to be tortured. They're not torturers in hell. Guardian angels for every child. Um, One rabbi said there's an angel for every blade of grass. I mean, all these things are fabled ideas of uh, to sort of prompt a wrong perspective of angels and people get things twisted up and and they they take a biblical truth and will run with it and make it mixed with mythology. 
right? People do that all the time. You talk to them about anything and, and they'll get some of it right. And then they'll go off track and they're not thinking biblically. And the warning is to never do that with Christ. If there's one thing we need to get right, it's Christ, right? We need to get right the right vision of the one whom we worship and love the most. And last, a couple weeks ago, we looked at verses one through three and how Christ is exalted. He's the sun. He's the radiance. He's the glory, radiance of the glory of God, verse three. The exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And he made purification for our sins of the cross and set down the right hand of the right hand of the majesty on high. This is Christ, creator, sustainer, Lord, purifier. He is all of these things. And the rest of this chapter takes seven Old Testament passages and fills out these points to say, don't run after angels, keep running the race for God and keep a true focus on the true Christ. That's the issue. That's what's going on. Yes, in Hebrews 2.7, Christ was made lower than the angels for a little while, but that was in terms of his willingness to come and die for us on the cross. We should never elevate anything to be a mediator, but the one mediator, which is Christ. And we for sure shouldn't fall into some sort of weird temptation like the Gentiles. The Greco-Roman culture was saying this about angels. I know the angels. I've got a personal relationship, an inside track with angels. I, I have the secret knowledge. It's Gnosticism where, where the angels communicate with me. You say, what, how is that germane? Well, that heresy happens today in the modern hyper-charismatic movement where people will try to command angels or wake them up or command the weather through angels. That is happening in the alleged church today, and we need to be aware of that false teaching and say, no, it's about Christ. If you get Christ right, everything else calibrates around that. You'll have a right view of angels if you get Christ right. I'm not saying there's not angels. I'm not saying that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood and principalities. I'm saying focus on Christ. Let's do what Michael did in warfare. The Lord rebuke you. The Lord Christ rebuke you, right? That's what he said to Satan. So we, we don't command angels. We just are sons and daughters of the living God who is greater than the angelic hosts who are outside of us. In Colossians 2.18, they were tempted to worship angels. It says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Going on about visions puffed up with reason by his sensuous mind, puffed up without reason. Well, the author is saying that Jesus is superior. So why is Jesus greater than the angels? Verse five, the son is greater. Jesus, not angels, was begotten. Angels were not begotten. The son was begotten. Look at verse five. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, Today, I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be a son. Keep reading for a second. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, 
He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Verse 8. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Stop there. The reason I read all of those verses is I wanted to highlight this pattern in verses 5 through 8. Do you see in verse 5, you are my son. And then at the end of verse 5, and he shall be a son. And then in verse 8, but of the son. And that brings us back up to verse 2. This is Christ who is God's son. Now angels in the Old Testament, as I gave that long survey about them, are called repeatedly sons of God. But no angel was ever called the capital son of God. Jesus is God's son. Jesus shares God's nature. Jesus is God. An angel is not that, is a created being. You know the cults that come up and they will knock on your door and say, look, let's debate over Jesus. Let's talk about whether or not he is a lesser God. You know, he's God, but he's a lesser God. There's real subtle ways that they will try to come at you and try to woo you into believing they're being biblical. But the passages that are laid out in front of us are emphatically saying that Jesus is God. This is a good place for you to go if you want to point out to someone the deity of Christ. Some of these verses are as clear and as strong as it gets in terms of Jesus being God. Verse 8 is one of them. But back up to verse 5. The two Old Testament passages that that the author is citing is Psalm 2-7, a messianic psalm, which was a prophetic psalm about Christ, and then 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. Before we unpack that, look again at verse 5. For the top of it, for to which of the angels did God ever say? This is a rhetorical question. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? You know, the answer, the unspoken answer is no angel, never, never. There's no angel that God the Father ever said, you're my son. That is categorically designated for Christ and Christ alone. He is God's son in a unique, singular way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Begotten here is so much more than just the incarnation when he was physically born 2,000 years ago, you'll see in a moment that the incarnation and the resurrection form this opportunity for the father to be saying, this is my beloved son. I am vindicating him and honoring him as the son. He is the eternal second member of the Trinity who has now been revealed to us as my son. And guess what? I have a father-to-son relationship that is unique and is powerfully unique. No angel shares in that relationship. This is not a superficial declaration. This is a declaration that the son of God is a son to a father who loves him. Who is, they've always been in fellowship together. But it was revealed and magnified through the father-son relationship as he walked here on earth. That's why you have the son language that 
where this word is repeated four times between verses two through eight. He's the son. It's amazing. And it's very different than an angel that is a servant. Let's go back to these Old Testament passages. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. What are these passages? Where do they come from? Well, again, the author is quoting the Septuagint. Say that three times, right? Anyway, the Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, but then translated into Koine Greek. And then New Testament authors would literally quote from the Septuagint, the Greek version, and that's what you see here. And it gives us insights into exactly what's meant here. These Verses, Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7, on the face were originally enthronement ordinances. They were, they were pronouncements of the Davidic reign. They were pronouncements over David, who was a physical king. If you read 2 Samuel 7, 14, I will be, a, I will be to him a father, that's future speaking, which speaks of David and it also alludes to Christ, and he shall be a son to me. Then it says, when he commits iniquity. Now we're just talking about David because Jesus is sinless, right? I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. Psalm 2, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. What does that mean? That language of begotten, it for sure makes us think about the incarnation of Christ as we apply it to Christ. But you need to understand This is speaking of an affirmation, a kingly affirmation. When a a son would be born to a king, it would be expected and anticipated that he would assume the throne. He's the begotten son. So this is language of affirmation on Christ, who when he came, it was assumed that he was going to fulfill the Davidic dynasty. He was going to be the fulfillment, the king of kings and lord of lords. We don't serve angels. We serve a king. A king who is a son. So sonship was fully affirmed at the resurrection, as I mentioned that before. Acts 13 is where Paul and Barnabas, on their first missionary journey, they were preaching and preaching to Jews. And in verse 33, Paul says, He has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. So this is the resurrection. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. So the resurrection is married together with this affirmation of Jesus being king. At the resurrection, he inherited a better name. What is the name Jesus inherited? Verse four speaks of. It was the name son, which is back to verse two. He's always had the high name of being the word from the beginning, the second member of the Trinity, But the name son, beloved son, what was affirmed at Christ's baptism, this is what's being extolled in honor. He's a king who is the son. Point two, the son is greater than angels because Jesus, not angels, is worshiped. Jesus is worshiped, not angels. Angels are not worshiped. 
Now, the author here is borrowing from Deuteronomy 32, 43, and Psalm 97, 7. Now, we are moving from milk to meat in some of this. So we're going to drill down for a second. So everybody just take a moment, you know, loosen up, get your thinking cap on, because I'm going to, you know, I'm going to push your minds just a little bit. Deuteronomy 32, 43. Uh, listen, listen to this and see how this matches with verse 6. Verse 6, it says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Let's stop there. Verse 32, 43 of Deuteronomy, or chapter, Deuteronomy 32, verse 43 says, rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. You say, there's no angels in that. Well, look at the phrase, all gods. And that's, you know, taken from the original Hebrew. Well, there was something that happened. And if you want deeper reference on this or to correct what I'm about to say, you can um, reference our Old Testament scholar, um, Uh, in the room, Nathan Schneider. But um, I did some research here and it basically says that um, in the Qumran caves, which is the Dead Sea Scrolls event, where fragments of the Old Testament were found in cave four, if you really want to be specific, in cave four, there was a reference to this verse. And it literally says, rejoice with him, you heavens, and let all of God's angels worship him. So instead of it saying all gods, it says all God's angels. And so this very well could be a reference to angels that the author is pulling from to put sight this reference, let all God's angels worship him in verse six of the New Testament. Also the um, the, the Septuagint, um, interprets Deuteronomy 32, 43. Instead of it saying all gods, in the Greek it says sons of God, which again is a reference to angels. In Psalm 97, by the way, all worshipers of images are put to shame. 97 verse 7, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Well, where are the angels? Well, the, the original language here with the Septuagint translation of Psalm 97, which is the Greek version of Psalm 97, it says, hoi angeloi. So it would be all you angels worship him. And so again, the author is using those verses to bring this truth forward in the New Testament. Let all God's angels worship him. Now, what, is, what does that have to do with anything? Where, where are the angels supposed to be worshiping the Lord in terms of these verses? I want to point something else out to you. Do you see in verse 5 the word again? It says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, you see that? And then in verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the, the world, he says. Well, the words again here are creating a time sequence in terms of the events of Christ. His first coming at his incarnation is what's spoken of in verse 5. You are my son, today I've begotten you. Speaking of his first arrival, his birth, his incarnation, him being affirmed as son and his resurrection. 
And then in verse 6, it says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Well, if he came the first time and then he's coming again, what is that talking about? It's talking about the second coming of Christ. So at the second coming of Christ, when Christ comes, not as the merciful lamb, but comes as the roaring, vindicating lion, the angels are going to worship him then as well. The second coming of Christ also speaks of Christ's rule and reign with a rod of iron. He is God. Now, look again at verse 6. It says, again, when he brings the firstborn into the world. That firstborn word is prototokos. Don't let that throw you. That word, again, speaking of his second coming, is not speaking of him being born at the incarnation. The word prototokos is speaking of being an heir, someone who's an inheritor of all things. And we've spoken of this before. It's the same usage of firstborn in Colossians 1.15. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That means he's the creator of everything, so he's the firstborn over it. He's the owner of everything that he's created. Do you understand that? Firstborn is used of children who were born first, but every child that was born first in the Old Testament was not the inheritor of everything. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Esau, who was born first? Esau, but who was the inheritor of the blessing? Jacob. Reuben, out of, uh, you know, representing the 12 tribes, out of the the children uh, there, was the first one who was born, but Reuben's honor was not just based on his chronology, He was born to Isaac and he was born with might and dignity. And so that's part of the honor that came to him. Psalm 89, 27 clarifies this. It's speaking about Christ being raised up as king. It says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Well, the son is greater than angels. Point three, the son is is greater, first of all, Jesus, not angels, was begotten. Jesus, not angels, is to be worshipped. And Jesus, not angels, has God's nature. Has God's nature. Look at verse 7. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Look at verse 8. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Just stop there. I remember, I just have to say this, as a new Christian, one of the things that I was always searching for was just a definitive word to just shut the door on the debate over whether Jesus is God. I just wanted a concrete verse to go to. And I, you know, I've found in Revelation chapter 1, he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first and the last, right? I and the Father are one, Jesus said of himself, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And the Word came here and dwelt among us, so those arguments are airtight. Colossians 1 was another place that I you know, looked at as all things were created by him and for him because Christ is God, right? But this verse just seems to be the strongest single verse in Scripture to declare the deity of Christ. 
but of the son. And this is the father speaking. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This speaks of the nature of Christ. He was, he is, and is to come. And the rest of this chapter speaks about how creation's going to be rolled up like a cloak, like a garment, but Christ remains. He exists as God. He was, he is, and he is to come. He's greater than angels. How greater angels? Well, again, verse 7 is quoting Psalm 104.4, that angels are winds and ministers a flame of fire. What does that mean? Does that mean angels are literally the wind or fire? Well, no credible scholar believes that. We should not believe that. The Bible doesn't teach that angels are the elements themselves. Some credible scholars do believe that angels control wind and control fire. I don't see that clearly in scripture. What I do see is that The wind and fire represent the power of an angel. Again, if you want to watch Touched by an Angel, I'm not going to come to your door and confront you. I'm just saying that's not what we're talking about. It's not what we're talking about. Angels are powerful beings. Very powerful. The more I study angels, the more I see why John threw himself at the feet of one. They're powerful Wind and fire speak of an angel's swiftness and destructiveness. Genesis 19.5 is where angels were warning Lot to, to get out of Sodom. Remember, angels had visited Abraham and he was entertaining them. And ultimately, they were, they were going over to Lot's house to protect him. And the angels struck the mobs that were trying to get into do debauchery and do shameful things to Lot and and his daughters. And the angels struck the mobs with blindness, right? Angels are powerful. And I don't know if you take 2 Samuel 24, 16, the angel of the Lord to be Christ. I guess that's a reasonable interpretation. But it says, when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel, so the Lord is speaking to the angel who was working destruction among the people. So Second Kings also reflects this kind of dominance. Second Kings 19.35, and that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, 8, here's a New Testament version of angelic might and power. Speaking of the end times and to grant relief to you, Paul says, who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. I believe that the armies around Christ, though Christ is the ultimate um, vindicating warrior and destroyer at that point, angels are involved in flaming fire. So what's the point? As elevated as angels are, even from the Old Testament to the New Testament, they do not surpass the might and power of our Christ, of our God. So when you're tempted to look for a different mediator, a different way to get through in life, whether by people or by 
Bible knowledge, right? Or by any other means whatsoever, by elevating a person, elevating a preacher, elevating a sermon, elevating anything, elevating money, elevating your position of authority, anything. Just insert that. What you have to do is swap that out. Elevating, I mean, perhaps some of you are into Gnostic beliefs or mysticism or cultic worship. Elevating anything like that instead of Christ is to miss Christ altogether. You either have this Christ and all of this Christ or you have no Christ. That's why Paul said if anyone comes preaching a different gospel, even an angel from heaven, let them be anathema, right? That's how serious it is. If you don't have Christ, you don't have the mediator. You don't have forgiveness. There's more to cover. I just want to skip ahead and I will backtrack next time. But verse 14, speaking of angels, they're not all ministering spirits sent out to serve. I'm sorry. Let me start again. Verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So angels, aren't they just as powerful and as dominant and as awesome as they are? Aren't they just messengers sent to serve? Isn't that where we began in Revelation where the angels saying, don't do that. Don't bow down and worship me, John. I'm just a servant. I'm just working with the brotherhood here. I'm just the messenger. Don't worship me. Worship Christ. Hear the author saying, aren't they all just ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Who are those people? Those are usins, right? Those are the we us. The angels are meant to serve us whether through giving us the message of truth. They're just meant to be catalysts, to helpers, servants, assistants of God, attendants to God, carrying out his will for our sake. And guess what we're called as Christians? Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the sons of God, the children of God. Jesus is the son, and he's the only son, but we're his adopted children, and you also are a son or a daughter sharing in the family of God. And no angel gets to do that, gets to be that, gets to feel that, gets to know that about himself or whatever you call an angel. I'm just saying we have sonship. Isn't that amazing? 